Welcome to the Harvard Fairbank Center's uh, weekly Wednesday seminar on critical issues for contemporary China. <clears throat> I'm Bill Overholt from the Kennedy School. It's a pleasure to introduce Professor Sheena Greitens from the University of Texas, Austin. She's also a non-resident fellow of Brookings. She earned her BA from Stanford, her Master of Philosophy from Oxford as a Marshall Scholar, and her doctorate from Harvard. Her book, Dictators and Their Secret Police, uh, is a study of why dictators in Taiwan, South Korea, and the Philippines structured their security services the way they did. I strongly recommend it. The book received the 2017 Best Book Award from both the International Studies Association and the Comparative Democratization Section of the American Political Science Association. She speaks Chinese and Korean languages and is currently working on China and North Korea. Professor Greitens' work on China is distinctive and particularly valuable because she brings to it a broad comparative perspective. Today, she's going to use that perspective to explain China's approach to national security under Xi Jinping. Professor Greitens, over to you. I'm going to jump in real quick there and just say, because I'm sure people will have lots of questions. So if, if you know how to use the question box, great. If not, it's at the bottom of your screen. Um, and if you want to ask questions at any point during the talk, just enter it into the Q&A box. If you'd like to be remain anonymous, um, please check the anonymous option. Otherwise, let us know who you are and what your institution is so we know who's asking the question. All right, now I'll throw it over to you, Professor. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for, for having me today. Um, I enjoyed and learned a tremendous amount from events like this one at the Fairbank Center um, when I was a graduate student across the street in the government department. And so it is really a pleasure for me to be able to speak with you all today. Um, so what I wanted to do is to talk about something that I think has really been central to Chinese politics and Chinese foreign policy in the time since Xi Jinping became China's preeminent leader. And I'll, I'll add that, um, you know, what I'm going to reflect on today is uh, a, a book manuscript in progress that hopefully will be done later this, um, later this summer. And uh, also it appears in an, an edited volume that the Fairbank Center has organized, the, the companion or, or second volume of the China Questions, um, which I think will also be coming out later this year. Um, and so what I want to do is to talk about how China um, frames and executes its what it calls its national security strategy. Um, and so today you'll actually hear me use um, both the terms national security and the term grand strategy. And the reason that I, I use the term grand strategy is that if you if you look at how that term is defined, um, the sort of most commonplace or intuitive definition, um, one of the, the, the simpler definitions is that it's just a state's theory of how to cause security for itself. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that gives us a good lens through which to view China's behavior that does also uh, uh, highlight 
places where China has some things in common with the approach to security and, and strategy with other countries um, and places where China's uh, approach and experience are also distinctive and, and unique. And so I do want to highlight here that most of the studies of grand strategy that we have come from Western democratic great powers, um, typically the US and the UK um, at the times when those countries played major roles in world politics. Um, and so as a result, a lot of our studies of, of grand strategy tend to focus on foreign policy and military power. Um, and I think there are good reasons for that, but I do think we need to be careful and to say upfront exactly you know, where that, that works and doesn't um, for discussing uh, China's approach to these same questions. Um, and China is after all um, a, a very different country with its own distinctive um, history and ways of approaching politics, both domestically and in the world. Um, it's a non-Western country. It is what we call a late modernizer, which, um, which has some effect on how it organizes um, and manages its coercive forces. Um, it's a socialist non-democracy with a party state system. Um, and so, for example, um, many of you probably know that the PLA is a party army, not a national army. Um, and that's a distinction that, that China has been quite clear and quite deliberate about maintaining. Um, as a result uh, of, of some of these factors and of China's own history, there's also a really heavy focus in security on internal security questions. And so many of the tools and the, the approaches um, and the methods that China uh, sort of has at hand to think about security questions actually focus on the role of civilian security organizations and the internal security apparatus, the political legal system, rather than the military. And, foreign policy and diplomatic tools. Um, it's not that, that there's a sort of black and white and they only focus internally. Um, it's just that there's a much stronger emphasis on these internal security questions and therefore on internal security uh, actors and tools. Um, and one of the other major differences, especially from the United States, is that until 2015, China did not have a codified national security strategy document. That is a change that was made to the Chinese policy process under Xi Jinping. And I think it's an important one, as I'll come back to in a moment. So, you know, there's this question um, in among scholars who look at Chinese politics and at China's grand strategy about exactly how different Xi Jinping's grand strategy is. Um, and there are some, you know, very prominent, smart folks who have argued. Um, that actually there's a fair amount of continuity and she, what Xi Jinping is doing is not that new and different. Um, so you see, you know, this book, for example, Haunted by Chaos, um, that argues that Xi's grand strategy is, you know, essentially um, continuous with and not a fundamental break with that of his predecessors or a recent international security article by Avery Goldstein, who's written a, a book length study of China's grand strategy um, that also argues that yes, there are some differences, but that Xi Jinping has not fundamentally broken with this strategy of national rejuvenation that's been pursued by Chinese leaders at least since the 1990s. Um, and so these works tend to really emphasize that continuity. On the other hand, you have you know, some work by folks like Rush Doshi, um, who's now a staffer on the National Security Council, but who, who did his PhD at, at Harvard, and I would guess had some interaction with the Fairbank Center while he was doing that, um, that you know, reads through Chinese uh, documentary sources and evidence and concludes that China does have a new grand strategy. 
um, and that it's one that is aimed at displacing the United States from its position at the apex of the current international order. Um, and so, you know, here you can see already that, that there's some debate. Um, the argument that I'm going to try to present and convince you of today is that neither of these is exactly right. That there is, in fact, a new grand strategy and a new approach to national security uh, strategy and policymaking under Xi Jinping, um, but that it's actually a much more internally uh, oriented strategy than the focus on displacing the United States and in the international system might suggest. Um, and that it's helpful to keep that internal security perspective front and center when we try to analyze and interpret China's contemporary behavior at home and abroad. So the first question that I want to answer is this question of, is Xi Jinping's strategy actually new? And to, to, to decide what the answer is to that question, I would argue that we have to look at three different um, questions and conditions. Um, we have to meet three conditions for there to be a new grand strategy. First of all, there has to be a change in China's perception of its threat environment. Um, it, and it has to clearly articulate what is it exactly that is different. Um, second, in response to that new characterization of threats, there has to be a new approach. Um, if strategy is the linking of ends and means, um, then you have to have a new way of tying those two things together in order to solve the security problems that, that are new. Um, and then third, this can't all be sort of pie in the sky academic theory. It has to actually get put into political practice and practice on the ground. Um, so we have to see that the strategy prompts changes in behavior. Um, it could be changes in bureaucratic organization, in national security law, in personnel appointments, in budgets and procurement, or in policies themselves. Um, and so I, uh, my belief today, um, what I'll argue today is, is that in fact, all three of these conditions have been met and that there is a new and distinctive um, approach to national security strategy or to grand strategy uh, under Xi Jinping. Um, that shift uh, and that pivot to an, a new approach began, I think, in, in April of 2014, um, arguably maybe the fall before. There was some brief mention in some party documents of, um, of national security, but really um, the first big uh, moment in the timeline um, that's important is in April of 2014, when Xi Jinping announces this comprehensive national security concept. Um, and in, in tandem with that, launches a new organization, a party body called the Central National Security Commission, whose job it is to try to improve coordination and management of national security concerns. Um, and, uh, and I'll come back to the, the importance of that organization in, in a moment. Um, but that was followed uh, relatively in a relatively short period um, in January of 2015 by the Politburo approving China's inaugural national security strategy. Um, the first sort of codified document that lays out a national security strategy for China. Now, in the meantime, and since that time, Xi Jinping has actually written and said a lot about what national security is, what this concept is, how it needs to be operationalized, why it was important that it happened, where it came from, um, so much so that, as you can see in this um, screenshot of a news article here, um, that there's actually been a, a full book um, of Xi Jinping's writings and commentary on national security questions that was published just covering the 2014 to 2018 time period. Um, so this was released on the, the fourth anniversary of the launch of the comprehensive national security concept. 
Um, and uh, I would guess based on the, the other things that I've read and seen online that we, we are probably due for a second volume or a companion um, shortly here. Um, and so, you know, what's important about uh, this national security strategy is actually the way that, that China frames it. Um, and Chinese sources um, tend to refer to it as a break with past practice um, and as a new thing for China. And that this is something that is new, it's developing a theory of national security with Chinese characteristics um, and comments like that, that, that sort of consistently characterize it as an inflection point and a change from, from precedent. Um, part of this is a, you know, a leader who wants to put his individual stamp on national security policymaking, um, but it's important to realize that it is explicitly framed at the time as a change. Um, and it's a change in the following ways it does assess China's threat environment differently. Um, and in some ways uh, in, a, in a darker or more threatening way um, than Xi Jinping's immediate predecessors had. Um, so in particular, uh, when this concept premieres, Xi Jinping talks about the fact that China is now facing the most complicated internal and external factors in its history, um, which is a pretty big statement to, when you think about um, you know, the history of, of China in the 20th century. Um, and um, it's really, uh, you know, not necessarily the most difficult, but the most complicated. Um, and so uh, the idea here is that the internal security uh, environment has grown increasingly complex um, and that it's marked by increasing threats and challenges and that those threats and challenges are interlocked and can be mutually activated. Um, and so all of this comes back a little bit later because there's a very clear connection drawn here between internal and external security and the potential for these threats to interlock and to reinforce each other. Um, and so in contrast to some of, uh, you know, some of the, the things that have been written about China seeing you know, an unprecedented period of strategic opportunity, that writing is there, right? And it does portray opportunity for China um, but what's sometimes missing from that writing is that um, almost in dialectical fashion, that emphasis on opportunity is paired with increasing risks and difficulties. Um, and you read things that explicitly say as China reaches, you know, comes closer to its goal of being at the center of the world stage, the risks and the difficulties will increase correspondingly. Um, and so this is a, a, a sense that the world is uncertain, it's less stable, it's more complex. Um, and that the different types of threats, traditional and non-traditional, internal and external, are interlocking and can be mutually activated. So from there then, um, the, Xi Jinping goes on and, and outlines essentially a new approach, a new linking of means and ends to, 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 um, to, to approach the environment that China faces. Um, there are a couple of things that are important about that. First of all, the center of gravity of national security work is explicitly internal. Um, that is stated very, very plainly. Um, and like I said, there is this explicit contrast um, and you see things like, well, you know, previously, even in the post-Cold War environment, China's leaders and party leaders focused on traditional security and on external threats. And under Xi Jinping, we are, we are rebalancing that or reorienting it to have more of a focus on the non-traditional and the internal um, dimensions of, of the threats that China faces. Um, 
so again, there's this explicit contrasting of, of um, the, the approach that Xi Jinping is taking with his predecessors. Um, it's also very clear that the foundation is political security, which is, is typically defined as securing you know, the authority of the CCP or the CCP Central Committee leadership with Xi Jinping at the core. Um, and so it's, it's very clear that this is about um, you know, regime security. And in some ways, one could actually translate national security as state security. Um, the, the, the term right, um, can, be, can be translated, um, the term that, that Chinese sources tend to translate into English as, as the comprehensive national security concept um, is the same phrase that appears, for example, in the Ministry of State Security. So, so either one, I think, is a, a legitimate translation. Um, and if anything, perhaps state security is a little more intuitive for us to grasp because it gets at this idea of political and regime security as the foundation of this entire effort. Um, I think that's important to remember because, um, you know, I, when I see tweets like this one from Xinhua following the Anchorage meeting um, a couple weeks ago, um, you know, there's this this um, this image that says, "Look, here's the red line that should never be crossed," and it's actually about um, questioning the governing status of the Communist Party of China and the security of China's socialist system. Um, it's again the focus and the referent here is regime security. Um, then after that, so that sort of clearly outlines where the focus of the, the new approach should be. Um, and then if we if we think about, okay, well, what do you do with that? Um, then the, the phrase that Xi Jinping tends to use fairly often, that's now, um, you know, uh, sort of widely seated in a lot of policy documents is this focus on prevention and control. Um, and so you see, for example, um, in the same month that the new national security strategy was approved, Xi Jinping speaking to the political legal apparatus um, at the, the annual work conference and using this phrase, um, we must adapt to the new circumstances, strengthen forward-looking work, event effectively prevent and control various risks. Right? And so you see the link between the new circumstances and the need then to prevent and control risks in a highly uncertain environment. Um, and that gets followed by folks like Meng Jinju um, speaking to the political, also to the political legal apparatus in this case, um, you know, and actually implicitly drawing some contrast with the previous approach of stability maintenance as too reactive and too suppressive. And instead, we need to treat both symptoms and underlying causes. There's a lot of medical analogies in, in this discourse. Um, and deeply analyze the sources of potential risks in order to intensify governance at, at their origin. Um, and so then, you know, over time and over a series of, of documents and speeches and directives, um, the end that is outlined is often characterized as one of a multidimensional information-based prevention and control system for public and social security. Um, it's a mouthful no matter which language you, you say it in, um, but that is, that is the goal, that is the desired end state. Um, and so the tools for this are things like front-end social governance, um, there's this recurrent metaphor of immunization, which I'll come back to because it becomes especially important in Xinjiang. Um, the invocation of the Feng Chao experience and this, this, um, you know, um, this sort of Mao era um, experience as a lesson for today. Um, the lesson being really, again, early prevention to prevent escalation, either vertically in the Chinese political system or horizontally across different areas within China. Um, the other thing that's very new and different about this uh, approach 
is uh, a rearticulation of the relationship between development and security. So particularly as it relates to places like Tibet, Xinjiang, less developed areas, um, the sort of implicit framing had often been, well, if we do enough work on economic development, that will in and of itself resolve the instability and the security issues um, that the party faces in, in governing those regions. Um, and that's actually no longer the way it's characterized. Increasingly, we see an emphasis, um, whether it's in Xi Jinping's own words or um, related commentaries, that security has, is now a precondition for development. It's not the natural result of development, it's a precondition for it. Um, and I can talk a bit more about that if, if people have questions about the implications of that. Um, and then for the third step, so, so, so that's the first two, two tests that I outlined. There's a, a revised characterization of the threat environment, and there's also a new approach proposed, a new, a new doctrine um, that a new way of linking ends and means um, to try to solve uh, the, the problems that China faces in the new environment. And so then we see that this has prompted um, some pretty massive changes within China's national security architecture. And most of the time, those changes are explicitly linked to and justified in terms of the new concept, the comprehensive national security concept, and the, the new national security strategy. Um, and so along with that, there's been a significant reorganization of China's security, uh, national security apparatus. Um, the creation of the Central National Security Commission was the, the first and earliest step, but that's been followed by reorganization within the People's Armed Police and the PLA, and consolidation of the discipline and supervision apparatus, which is now sometimes referred to as the sharp sword of supervision. Um, occasionally, although not very often, in um, sort of an explicit triad with um, with the, the gun and the knife handle, referring to the, the internal security and the organs and the political legal apparatus. Um, so there, there's been significant organizational changes in the national security system and bureaucracy. There have been um, a large number of legal changes, most of which have been re reported individually as each law has been passed by the NPC. Um, and these are a whole set of new national security laws that have both internal and external implications and that often don't clearly separate um, because the comprehensive national security concept actually urges people to see internal and external security as, as interconnected um, and, and interlocked. Um, and so here's one list. This actually isn't even all of it. The, um, the screenshot continues off the page, um, but this is a list of, of some of the earliest set of laws that, um, that were passed, um, again, in a process starting around the time that this concept and this strategy um, emerged into public view. Um, and, uh, you know, the latest of which, which was not on the, the chart a moment ago, is the, the Hong Kong national security law, where we're seeing, um, you know, increasingly the securitization of, um, of Hong Kong itself, but in particular, in this case, um, the, the screen, this the tweet that's, um, that's included in the screenshot here, um, has to do with the um, the role of the new national security uh, offices in Hong Kong in screening candidates for participation in, in Hong Kong's electoral system. Um, and so the extension of the, the national security state that's been constructed um, and its, its um, 
extension into uh, into Hong Kong itself, um, which was a process that was was um, started and sort of legally enabled by the passage of the Hong Kong National Security Law. Um, there have also been uh, significant changes to the budget. Again, if you think about this goal of creating a multidimensional information-based system of prevention and control for social and, and uh, public security, um, then surveillance technology plays a significant role in that, that aim, that aim of information-based prevention and control. Um, and so by now we've all, all probably read um, a bunch of different stories. Um, about the the rise of um, you know procurement directed at surveillance technology, whether it's at, at the national level or um, more often at the provincial and the local public security um, budget level, um, and so um, you know things like this that will identify license plates or faces or the way somebody walks um, and link that to uh, a national ID card or or other information from elsewhere in the Chinese bureaucracy. Um, and in some work that I've done actually with a, a Chinese co-author, um, we look at the fact that a lot of effort recently has been um, devoted less to the collection side of this, the sort of externally visible part, and actually a lot of effort has been devoted to creating um, backend platforms that can resolve what Li Keqiang has referred to as information islands, um, which is basically different parts of the party state collecting different information, but nobody having the, the ability to integrate that data and actually effectively use it in governance. So for the last five years or so, there's been a real push, including at the national level, to try to resolve some of these problems of information islands. Um, as many of you will know, um, in China's sort of fragmented authoritarian system, that is a real challenge and some of the obstacles are, are political rather than technical. Um, so we don't by any means claim that China has solved this problem, just that the, the party state is aware of it and is actively working on um, approaches to that um, with, again, the idea that information islands can, um, can, can block um, this goal of effective prevention and control. Um, this is also an issue um, for global politics and a case where the development of certain surveillance tools and platforms in China have global consequences. Um, this is a map from a paper I did about a year ago for the Brookings Institution, where we looked at um, places where China had exported these, these platforms. So platforms that had seemed to have some data integration capability um, and found that cities in a, a wide number of, of countries, um, at least 80 or so by our estimation, um, were using some of these safe city type uh, type platform. So this is um, this is a case where um, the external manifestations of these developments in China become really important for for global politics and global governance. Um, you know, a couple of other features or ways in which this strategy has been operationalized. Um, one is is via large scale personnel replacement and purges in both the military and the political legal apparatus, which have been major um, areas of focus in the anti corruption campaigns. Um, and that you know, scrutiny, tightening of political discipline, and in some cases, replacement of, of personnel is continuing to date under the rectification and education campaign that began earlier this year um, and that had a, a pilot last year. Um, and then finally, there are just policy changes that reflect this revised view of the relationship between internal and external security 
One facet of that that, um, that I've been working on recently that hasn't gotten a lot of attention is the increased international activity of PRC law enforcement agencies, um, in particular, um, the Ministry of Public Security, um, pursuit of extra, uh, extra extradition agreements um, and other forms of police cooperation abroad. Um, again, reflecting the idea that um, the agencies that are in charge of policing and domestic security inside China need to know about international developments that affect um, things closer to home. And then the, you know, the final one, which I'll, I'll mention simply because it's, it's gotten a lot of um, a lot of attention and has become central in, in the US-China relationship and in China's relationship with the outside world and the international community has to do with China's changing internal security strategy in Xinjiang. One of the first areas where Xi Jinping then, uh, applied the national security strategy to a sort of concrete security challenge um, was actually in counterterrorism policy and in using that to frame the approach uh, being taken to, to Xinjiang. Um, this is a really complicated uh, thing that I'm happy to get into more if people have specific questions about it. Um, but in some, some work that I've done with a couple of co-authors, um, we argue that, that because of the environment created by the national security strategy, um, China was sort of unusually sensitive to smaller changes in external, um, external conditions, in particular, um, connections that were made by a small number of members of the Uyghur diaspora with militant groups in Southeast Asia or in the Middle East and North Africa, but particularly in Syria. Um, and that uh, there was there's a lot of rhetoric in China about the need to prevent reverse diffusion and the inflow of foreign fighters or funding or even just ideas. Um, and that coupled with that metaphor of immunization, that is common in this prevention and control discourse, um, what you get is an attempt to quote unquote immunize the, um, the residents of Xinjiang through re-education and mass coercive detention. Um, and the metaphor of immunization sort of ironically points out, right, if you, if you were, we've all now thought a lot about immunization in the, the course of the past year, um, but as you know, you immunize people before they're exposed to a potential virus. Um, China uses the language of political virus or political tumor. Um, and so um, the very metaphor itself, even though it's intended to evoke a sort of curative and, and medically benign um, approach by the party state, actually does highlight that the people who are being targeted and, and, and treated um, are being treated before they're, they're necessarily exposed to anything that's politically problematic, even by the CCP's own um, standards for that term, which are um, which include a lot of things that, that would normally be treated as, as um, simply um, religious piety or normal religious practice. Um, and so I think, you know, understanding the backdrop of the, the national security strategy and the way that the concept portrays the relationship between internal and external security helps us explain what otherwise is a sort of, you know, bafflingly disproportionate overreaction um, to events and conditions in Xinjiang itself. Um, and I think that that makes more sense if we look at, at the way that the national security strategy predisposes and urges Chinese officials to treat that threat. Um, that is in no way a justification, but I think it helps us understand a bit more about the worldview that has led to, to these events. Um, 
And so with that, I'm, I'm running um, up on uh, time here. I want to make sure that I, I leave plenty of time to answer questions because I've seen a few already uh, in the, the chat here. Um, but I want to close by offering a couple of thoughts about what the implications are for future Chinese behavior and in particular for American or international policies in, um, in managing relations with the PRC and with the CCP. Um, you know, first of all, as a sort of basic point, even though um, the the uh, the Chinese um, media and um, and official translations call this national security, I think it's worth emphasizing, especially to a um, you know a large number of people who work on American national security strategy, but don't necessarily specialize in Chinese politics itself, um, but who are now working centrally and largely on, on China, given where it falls in US national security calculus. I think given that it's worth highlighting that when China uses the term national security, it's not um, an easy corollary or counterpart to the US national security strategy. Um, it, they're not the same thing. At the same time though, um, I do believe and think there's good evidence that China's approach to national security under Xi Jinping can be thought of as a coherent grand strategy. Um, and I've, I've explained a little bit today about why I think that's the, the case. Um, however, in that, internal security is better thought as an end of, of CCP grand strategy, not just as a means. So typically in the literature on grand strategy, it's about what do you want to accomplish in the world if you're the US or the UK, and domestic politics can kind of make you more or less able to pursue those external goals. And here I think we have to remember that, that internal security is actually more of an end than just a means or a constraint on means. Um, and then some of the time what we're seeing is a grand strategy and foreign policy behavior that is the externalization of internal security concerns and policies that are chiefly designed around internal security goals. Um, Xi Jinping referred to this in 2017 as a global vision for state security work. Um, and reframing that I think sometimes helps us connect the dots on things that might seem disconnected, but also might help us um, think about alternative interpretations to some of the behavior that, that we're seeing on the, the global stage or in foreign policy. Um, you know, one of the other implications is, um, is to think about why um, relations with, with the Chinese diaspora and Chinese populations abroad have become um, you know, fraught and tense. And one potential answer for that um, is that this strategy does approach um, diaspora policy through a pretty securitized lens. Um, and so one way of, of defining diasporas is they, that they are um, communities that are outside the state, outside the physical boundaries of the PRC, but still inside the body politic, outside the state, but inside the people. Um, and so if that's the case, then, then people who exist on that boundary between internal and external um, or who have that crossover role um, are going to get particular attention under a, a national security strategy um, that explicitly argues for a connection between the internal and external dimensions of security threat. Um, and I think that's relevant and really important for the United States to grapple with, particularly at a time when we've seen um, really deeply problematic racism and violence directed toward the AAPI community. Um, and then finally, I think, um, and this is not an optimistic note to end on, um, but I do think it's important to think about this as a, a challenge for American foreign policy, as well as for the broader international community, is um, that, you know, 
one way to read this is, okay, this is about insecurity at some level. The CCP is seeking to make itself secure. And so is there anything that, that one could do that might reassure, provide reassurance? Um, and I think the issue with, with this is that reassurance becomes much harder for the United States politically, but also for a lot of other democracies in the international system if the referent is regime is truly regime security rather than national security. And so that actually suggests to me um, a reason why some of our past attempts at, at reassurance um, as the flip side of, of, of a deterrent policy um, might have run into some trouble in the past. Um, and also, um, you know, some areas where this is going to be a difficult and thorny issue for US policymakers working on China to navigate in the future. Um, so I think I think if, if we can diagnose some of these issues correctly, we have a much better chance of coming up with constructive policies for U.S.-China relations, um, and uh, and that's clearly really a, a critical issue for for people in both countries right now. Um, so with that, I will uh, I will close there um, and uh, be happy to to take questions. But again, I really appreciate um, everyone's time and attention and interest today. And uh, I'm really grateful to the Fairbank Center for having me. So thank you again very much. Uh, Sheena, thank you very much for a wonderful and wonderfully clear talk. Um, uh, let me lead off by asking you how a couple of big issues fit into uh, this framework of yours. Uh, Belt and Road, uh, how does that fit into the national security framework? And, and then this question of China's joining the system versus trying to disrupt the system. Uh, to, to what extent do they see the, what we call the international system uh, as as uh, su supportive of them and, and uh, threatening to them. Let me see if I can take that, that last question first. Um, and the answer is, I think there actually is still some diversity of thought, um, maybe that's more implicit than explicit in, um, in Chinese writing and discussion of, of this topic. Um, certainly, there's a sense that the international system was designed in an era um, when China's power to influence it was more limited, um, that it was designed for a world in which the US um, was predominant, and that China should have a greater say in shaping the rules um, and the, the norms of of international order. Um, and I'm conscious as I'm using the term international order um, that uh, you all are probably very familiar with work, um, for example, by Ian Johnston that argues that there isn't one international order, there's a set of overlapping orders and that China's interests may be you know, more revisionist in some of those places than others. Um, and I tend to agree with that view that it's helpful to disaggregate that, that one concept of international order probably isn't um, uh, is a little bit too simplistic for the complexity that is really emphasized in China's portrayal of the international environment. Um, that you know that that said, I think um, there are some areas in which China clearly wants to change the operation of the international system 
in ways that whether the goal is to take out the United States or limit the United States influence, that would be the effect. Um, and so I tend, um, actually, when I think about, about China, um, I can't ultimately speak to what in, what's in Xi Jinping's head. At that point, we're in the realm of psychology, which is not my field of expertise or actual mind reading, and I'm not a psychic. Um, so what I tend to, to try to look at is what are the effects of China's behavior? Um, and so particularly in some of the areas that I look at, for example, in surveillance technology, um, it's, it's not clear to me that what China is doing is necessarily trying to, I, I don't see a lot of evidence that China is trying to install a Marxist-Leninist system of governance that copies China. Um, you know, I think um, Liz Perry has also made the really uh, wise point that China's model itself relies on adaptability to local conditions, right? Even within China, the CCP is willing to have sort of a, um, an idea or a goal and to adapt a fair amount um, to achieve that goal in very different local contexts. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the export of surveillance is a case where, um, you know, it's not a one size fits all model that's being applied cookie cutter in different places. Um, but we also do see that some of the folks who pick up and use that technology use it to make the societies that they're governing less liberal, less free, and less democratic. Um, and so from the standpoint of effects, those effects may be still may be concerning, um, regardless of whether China has a sort of coherent strategic intent to accomplish that goal. It may actually be a byproduct of market incentives and um, and the CCP having more defensive political goals, but from the purpose of US policy, if the result is still to undermine um, democracy and liberal democracy worldwide, um, then to me that's still a, a reason to be concerned and to think very carefully about what the US strategy should be in response. Um, so that probably sounds like the, the comment about um, the two-handed economist on the one hand, on the other hand, but I actually think it's really important to keep both of those points in mind. Any comment about BRI, national security? Um, you know, I think that, that BRI, um, because, so first of all, you know, I think, um, I think BRI uh, is, I'm trying to figure out how to answer this question concisely in a way that won't take the rest of the time that we have. Um, I think one of the things that has happened as a result of BRI, which developed kind of partly in, in tandem or in parallel with some of this discourse on national security, is that we do see that China um, you know, is now uh, present in more and more places around the world and, um, and therefore in some ways more exposed to um, security threats in different parts of the world. And so actually what you see in some of the Chinese academic writing um, about BRI and the national security concept um, is that part of the reason for China to think about kind of pushing the boundaries of the national security concept outward, which is a phrase that's used in a couple of, of articles that I've looked at, um, has to do with, well, okay, you know, the national security concept still has to protect Chinese businesses and interests overseas. Um, and so I think BRI has been tied into the national security concept because it's, it's um, sort of facilitated or created this environment in which the um, expansion of the national security state beyond the sort of the formal borders of the PRC makes sense because that's still protecting China in the sense of, of 
um, Chinese companies and Chinese citizens abroad. Thank you. Um, you mentioned Ian Johnson. Uh, uh, he actually has a question for you. Oh, great. I'm sure it'll be a tough one. Now I'm terrified. Uh, well, yes, uh, about the extent to which the US is blamed for uh, minority unrest. They always talk about hostile external forces. Uh, and certainly, there was a lot of talk about that in Hong Kong. Uh, and in Hong Kong, it did refer primarily to the US. Um, how, how general is this? Yeah, um, that's a very, um, a question that I want to be very careful answering because in describing the perceptions that are reflected in Chinese writing, I, I want to be very careful that that's not in any way sort of providing a, a justification for the response. Um, so let me just start out with that as a framing comment. Um, you know, there's a long history in um, in the CCP's thinking about, um, you know, even going back to the perception of the fall of the Soviet Union, that external forces um, could come in and destabilize single party rule. Um, and in particular, that religion was, and religious activity or religious networks were a vehicle for transmitting that influence. Right? There's a lot of concern about um, the role of the, the Polish Pope um, in, uh, in Poland and throughout Eastern Europe. Um, and that seems to have continued down to the, the, present, um, the present day, where there's a lot of concern about um, channels that we would not normally think of as being foreign influence, um, that would be politically destabilizing, um, but there's a, a heightened suspicion of a lot of those. And we, so we've seen that, that rhetoric um, paired with the language of a political virus, again, in Hong Kong, um, but also concern about destabilization in, in Xinjiang. As it relates to Xinjiang, the type of external influence that receives sort of the most attention in Chinese thinking is actually, um, I would say, twofold. One is just the potential for um, people who have been particularly in Syria and active with, with militant groups in Syria to somehow come back into China um, and with increased ability to pose an armed challenge to the party state or to engage in political violence. Um, and so there's um, Chen Chuanguo has six things at one point that in a key speech he outlines the need to prevent and it's about funding and foreign fighters and um, and so it's, it's about there's the physical part right a physical um, uh, manifestation of an external threat crossing the border. Um, but the other piece of this is ideological um, and the idea that the root of um, political violence and extremism and separatist behavior, to use the CCP's three evils, um, is actually in, in ideology. Um, and so that's where you get this focus on re-education as the, the way of immunizing. Um, it's actually about um, you know, re-educating people to have the, the correct thinking. And that's because there's this idea that even the cross-border dissemination of, of ideologies that are counter to party leadership or that don't recognize the authority of party leadership could eventually manifest themselves physically in problematic behavior. And so this idea of intensifying governance at the source actually means going in and trying to change people's ideological makeup and ideological beliefs. 
Um, and that's what I was getting at a bit earlier when I talked about the sort of the extreme, um, the, the extreme form of prevention and control is an intervention at the, the level of ideology and people's thinking. Um, and so that's the, the sort of the logic chain that leads you to the construction of these detention and re-education facilities in, in Xinjiang. Um, and in that case, it's really more about the risk of sort of ideological contamination that will eventually spill over into physical harm. But it's it, the pathway is, is less direct than foreign fighters will come back and start fighting immediately. It's foreign thinking or uh, ideology will, will infiltrate China and eventually that would, would manifest itself in a, a problem with physical security and damage and harm. Um, but the pathway is much less direct. Following up on your comments about ideology, we have an anonymous uh, question about uh, how deeply uh, does ideology play a role? Uh, you've explained very clearly that it's important to the regime that people think a certain way, but is it also an if I understand this question correctly, uh, I was asking, is it also a very fundamental organizing principle of the way they actually do things? And the, the question uh, references uh, Carl Schmitt's jurisprudence uh, and its increasing use uh, as maybe an indicator that ideology really is important. So um, I don't think I can answer the question about how to interpret um, the use of Carl Schmitt's jurisprudence specifically, um, just because that's a bit outside my, I'm not a legal scholar and I wanna be careful to try to stay in, in my, my lane of expertise here. Um, but if, if I, you know, in general, um, the, there has been an, an effort and some of this is, you know, people trying to um, you know, in an environment in which the comprehensive national security concept's been introduced, you have 11 different kinds of, of security underneath national security. Um, and so ideological security is typically actually described as a hybrid between political security and cultural security. Um, political and cultural security being two dimensions of, um, uh, of the 11 that Xi Jinping outlined to, to begin with. Um, and there has been some work um, largely within the, you know, the folks who work more on party ideology and, um, and education and, and, um, and propaganda to think about um, even, there's a really interesting article that was actually translated um, by CSIS on ideological security that describes the need for ideological early warning mechanisms and identification of ideological risks. And so you see, you know, some of this, uh, this attempt to figure out in, in, the, um, in the, the Chinese system, okay, we understand that, that ideology is important. We've had this sense going back to the fall of the Soviet Union, Xi Jinping appears to have a very particular um, you know, set of beliefs about the importance of, of ideology and the, the, the important role that a lack of ideological fidelity and corruption played in the fall of the Soviet Union. And so we really have to pay attention to this. 
Um, and we know that the goal is prevention and control. So how do we do this in the realm of ideology? Um, and I don't think there's a clear, you know, objective set of indicators that have emerged. Um, but what I find fascinating is that there is an attempt to say, okay, yes, there's an ideological dimension to this national security challenge and to try to figure out what that means if the aim is this, this very early um, emphasis on, on that, that goal of prevention and control. Um, but the, you know, the, the issue is that that requires um, you know, a lot of, of pressure toward conformity of thought and a narrowing of political space and a narrowing of the parameters for acceptable political discourse. Um, which is consistent, you know, with with some of what we've observed in China in policies on party leadership and higher education and things like that. Um, but I also don't want to overstate how far um, the ideological push has gone. But I, I do think some of the reemergence of of ideology um, has been connected to and incorporated into this national security framework. We have another anonymous question that asks, uh, where does this pervasive sense of regime insecurity come from? Uh, they've been in power for 70 years. The, the polls show this tremendous uh, support for the system. Uh, but all the time, Xi Jinping is talking about uh, the need to, to uh, protect the party from all these risks? Where does it come from? Um, you know, I, um, I think it, it comes from this sense that the international environment has become more uncertain and this almost dialectical uh, argument that as China gets closer to the center of the world stage and the center of the international system, that life actually becomes more dangerous. Um, and so instead of power leading to security, right, in some ways, um, with greater power actually comes greater insecurity. Um, and it seems to me that for reasons that I, I can't quite explain, um, Xi Jinping's personal risk tolerance um, for security threats seems to be a lot lower. Um, it may be that he recognizes historically the ability of unexpected events to cascade and very quickly have regime ending or regime transformational consequences. Um, that's speculation on my part, um, not, not sound political science analysis. Um, but for whatever reason, his um, tolerance for contention and instability and potential political risk seems to be lower. And it may be that that's also because he perceives the outside world to be, you know, and, and China's external environment to be more uncertain. Um, but, but what we see, um, what we can observe is just this characterization that China's environment is highly uncertain, highly unstable, um, that there are a lot of risks, um, and that actually becoming more powerful and growing in influence um, does not lessen those risks to the CCP. If anything, it heightens them. Um, now, you could obviously sit down with somebody and say, but why do you think that? Um, I don't know that we can clearly answer that question. Um, but we can observe pretty consistently that that's the way um, China's environment and level of security get framed. That's probably a deeply unsatisfying answer, um, but that's probably the best I can do today. Oh, thanks. Uh, let me just follow up on that. Is it possible that 
he's also seeing increased risk from within his own elite. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, there are there there is a sense, and in particular in this, um, some of the writings about ideological security. Um, you see, I think, in the anti-corruption campaign, a much deeper level of concern about corruption. Um, not that it had been dismissed by the party leadership before, um, but a characterization in some cases of, as, uh, you know, that the corruption is the biggest threat to the, the CCP's ruling foundation. Um, and, uh, and so I think it's, it's also possible that, that um, there are things that, um, that previous leaders either were willing to tolerate or didn't have as much information on, um, and that this is a case because the Chinese system has become somewhat more personalized under Xi Jinping, that his sort of personal beliefs about risk, um, the levels of risk and risk tolerance are, are playing a, a much greater role. Um, so I think there's a little bit of interaction between um, sort of who gets to determine the, the risk and perception of risks and threats, um, and then the, the way that those risks are characterized. Um, and both have actually changed in China, as far as I can tell, in, um, in the last six to 10 years. Paul here has a, a related question. He, he uh, first thanks you for your brilliant presentation. And he says, your analysis highlights Beijing's visceral fears of internal instability. Uh, he wonders how, how that uh, fits together with the prevailing Western narrative of Beijing being overconfident internationally. You know, yeah, um, I have a somewhat different take than the idea of overconfidence. Um, again, I tend to shy away from terms like that because that's a characterization of the internal subjective state of a country of 1.3 billion people or the, the leadership of, of a country of 1.3 billion people, which is a, a whole lot. Um, and so I tend to get nervous about ascribing that to, um, to an entire you know, leadership or a regime of, that's composed of a lot of, of different people. Um, it need, there's no question that some of China's behavior looks that way from the, the outside, um, whether it's the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, um, the uh, you know, particularly striking insults uh, directed at Justin Trudeau this week, um, which made me do kind of a double take, frankly. Um, but uh, and bringing back the old the old um, Maoist era epithet of being a running dog of the Americans and, and that kind of language. And yeah, that, that can look like um, that can look like overconfidence. Um, I tend to see that as um, you know, again, China, there is this sense that China is more powerful in the international system that it should have more of a say. So there is definitely, I think, that belief that we see reflected in, in Chinese thinking and writing. But at the same time, I think the other thing that we tend to overlook a little bit is the imperative that Xi Jinping has put to the party state, which is you have to go be more proactive to manage this uncertain international environment, or it's going to come home and generate instability here, and we can't have that. 
Um, so I think there's actually a, a tension there even within China's own thinking and approach to its foreign policy behavior. China is more powerful. China deserves to have this say. Um, it, you know, that there's no question that that line of argument exists and is, is present in some of China's international behavior. Um, but I also think it's helpful to understand that internally within the party state, um, we're seeing a somewhat different justification that, that doesn't rule out this other line of argument, but that just is, is different and runs in parallel with it. The world is dangerous. As we get more powerful, it's even less safe and even more risky. And therefore you have to go stamp things out very, very early because otherwise they will translate into a fundamental threat to our political security here at home. Um, and that duality is just um, a little, you know, it isn't an easy thing to wrap one's head around, but I very much see both of them happening at once and shaping um, and, and both shaping Chinese foreign policy. I don't know if that answers Paul's, Paul's question, um, but he can he can let me know in the chat if I if that's a an answer that that makes some sense. Uh, I think you've put together the the, the the not really schizophrenic combination of we're going to be out there and more powerful, and uh, because we're out there more, we have to be more scared and stomp on things. Yeah, when I see this this question in the chat also about, I think this also answers the question of how to explain why it is that China's leaders become more insecure as the country's influence grows. Um, again, I don't know if we can get at the psychological roots of why, but we can observe that consistently the framing is as we get more influence, as we get more power, things get riskier, the stakes get higher, and therefore we have to be less and less tolerant of dissent um, or opposition abroad. Um, and that duality is fascinating and leads to some real contradictions in China's international behavior. Um, but I see it as a, a sort of, you know, reasonably coherent approach. Um, if you if you think of it as that those those dual threads intertwining um, in China's behavior. Tom Gold has a very specific question about uh, how recent behavior fits into the overall strategy. Uh, they've gone for this tit-for-tat tit uh, sanctioning, uh, now including professors and think tanks. Uh, and so we, we've got a, a spiral um, uh, to many people. It, it looks pretty counterproductive. Uh, how do you see this fitting in with within their overall view of how to handle national security? So this is a, a, a um, an area where I actually think China's behavior has changed pretty substantially in um, its approach, particularly toward um, foreign researchers and foreign academics. And I, I base that on um, the fact that I um, did a survey with a terrific colleague, Rory Truex at Princeton um, in the summer of 20, uh, well, in, in 2017 and 2018, where 
um, we asked academics and researchers, some in think tanks, some in, in, um, in universities, you know, how often they encountered various forms of obstacles or repression in the course of trying to do research about China. And these were all social scientists, so we're bracketing the STEM fields. Um, and talking about, you know, people who are trying to understand political, social, cultural dynamics in, in China. Um, and the way we characterized it at the time was that um, these repressive experiences were real, but that, but that they were relatively rare. And I'm no longer convinced that that description is accurate. I think that survey was at the time that, that we did it and wrote it up. Um, but it strikes me that a couple of key things have changed. Um, you know, one is that China, um, Chinese authorities used to rely a lot on uncertainty um, as a way of incentivizing academics and researchers to engage in self-policing um, and to some extent self-censorship um, and on, you know, people's calculations about, um, oh, well, I don't want to get a Chinese co-author or a Chinese colleague or my host institution in China in trouble. Um, so if somebody there gets warned that what I'm doing is, is not okay, I'm going to back off, um, which is an ethical response, right, to, to being a foreign researcher and trying to protect people in the country you're, you're, um, you are, are working in and have relationships in. Um, uh, and so what strikes me as new and different about this um, is, first of all, the use of, of legal tools, right, to put a legal framework around this. It's not just declaring someone persona non grata privately. It's not just saying, oh, you don't get a visa this time. Come back when when you've caused, you know, less mafan last time. Right. Um, uh, it's more that um, uh, we're seeing now a much more explicit this is not okay. The content of the work is not okay. Um, and also then the use of, of, a legal, of legal tools that kind of in some ways shift the burden of responsibility to some of the foreign researchers. Well, you can come back to China, um, but there were charges, there's a lawsuit filed and you need to deal with this in a court of law, um, which is a way of, um, I think, trying to frame the legitimacy of these boundaries differently, right? It's this is about adherence to Chinese law um, and the rule and and the, the you know the, the laws of the PRC, um, which is a very different issue than saying we just politically don't like what you did, right? Um, if you can appeal to uh, this is the law and it was broken, that's a it's just a different framing. Um, but it also is a more explicit laying out of a boundary that had been really blurry for a long time. Um, and people like, you know, Kevin O'Brien and Rachel Stern have written about the use of uncertainty in China's attempts to manage contention and, and potential, you know, challenges to the party state, whether local or, or larger. Um, and so I think what we're seeing is that, um, you know, that one of the big shifts is that those boundaries are, have become more explicit. Um, and, uh, and the use of law to really kind of lock in the parameters that are and are not acceptable strikes me as just a very different approach um, to the scholarly community than China has taken um, or that different parts of the party state have taken before. Um, and Tom raises a really interesting question about, you know, then, okay, what, what is what what is the Chinese system going to do when you have hundreds of academics who um, sign letters in support of their colleagues who um, who have been either sanctioned or um, now told they can't travel to China because of research. Um, and I, I don't think we know because the decision to levy those sanctions itself tells us that China's strategy toward managing this problem is changing. Um, 
And so therefore, I don't really know that we have a good baseline from which to predict um, how China will then handle the obvious second and third order consequences of people um, wanting to protect academic freedom and, um, and trying to support colleagues who've been targeted by these tools. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a very, it's a very rapidly changing approach on the Chinese side, um, partly due to these national security concerns being applied to, to research. Um, and I have a lot of concerns, but no clear predictions on where this is going to end up. But I think it's, it's, it, it's very difficult for those of us who want to, to go to China and understand China and, um, and to have relationships with Chinese um, colleagues and scholars. Um, you know, it's obviously pretty concerning. Thank you. Um, half a dozen people have asked uh, uh, about the big elephant in the room. Where, where does Taiwan fit into this national security perspective? Um, you know, I actually think there may have been relatively less change on the Taiwan framework than in some of the other areas that I described today. Um, because Taiwan has always been such an important national security priority for um, for the CCP, it's it and it still is. It's not clear to me um, that doesn't mean it's less important, um, but it seems like even though the framework has changed somewhat, it's not clear to me that that Taiwan policy is actually all that that different. Um, the big concern, I, you know, obviously what we what we read in the news is a growing concern. Um, about whether China has a specific timeline for resolving the Taiwan issue. Um, and, you know, Xi Jinping made some comments two, three years ago, I think it was in early 2018, um, where about um, wanting, to, wanting to have a resolution of the Taiwan issue, I think in his lifetime, as it was reported. I'm not sure we actually have access to the direct um, text of the, the statement that he made. Um, but there's been concern um, that, you know, there's been an increased um, you know, tempo of activity around, uh, around Taiwan, in uh, the airspace around Taiwan. Um, and I think the key question here, um, and this gets back to one of the implications at the very, very end of my presentation, um, is uh, to me, the big unanswered question is, um, is not about deterrence, right? There is a question of, okay, the United States, and I think the United States has really emphasized the need to deter Beijing from taking actions to coercively alter Taiwan's status, right? And, and that goes back to the, you know, the Taiwan Relations Act, to the Six Assurances, to these cornerstone principles of, of American policy toward Taiwan. Um, but, you know, typically the flip side of that is some sort of reassurance. Um, that the United that that the Beijing will um, will will not have certain um, you know beliefs explicitly challenged right there won't be a an an, uh, um, an um, what's the word I'm looking for a unilateral declaration of Taiwan's independence um, that by, that then from Ta Beijing's perspective violates the 2005 anti-secession law and puts us into a crisis. Um, the, the problem I think that we might have in Taiwan is the one that I alluded to at the very end, which is, um, which is that reassurance is a harder problem when you're dealing with this regime security and the security of a, a particular political party and set of leaders. 
um, than when you're dealing with the sort of classic approach to national security. Um, and it's not clear to me how much of that um, is actually at play in Taiwan, but I think to the extent that Xi Jinping has sort of personalized the Taiwan issue, made it an issue of his leadership rather than of, um, you know, a China's broader, um, you know, territorial integrity, um, I would actually be much more concerned if that issue is has been personalized and, and made an issue about the security of the CCP, um, because that suggests to me that it'll be harder for the United States to pair deterrence and reassurance in any, um, in any way that will actually affect Beijing's calculus. Um, but again, I don't, um, I, I think um, that's, in some ways we're lucky because these are questions that the United States and China have a lot of interactive data on um, and can think about which signals send which messages. And um, there's just a lot of awareness that this is a really um, sensitive and difficult issue. Um, so I actually worry a little bit more about the potential for miscalculation. It's not to say I don't worry about it in the Taiwan scenario because of how central it is, but, um, but I've been, um, looking a little bit more at some of these areas where I think um, we don't really understand the drivers of, of um, Chinese policy and the way that internal security calculations uh, may have changed China's international behavior. Um, and I guess I, I still see that there's maybe more, a bigger delta between past and present in some of these other areas than maybe in the Taiwan issue. So um, I, I, I think um, what I will keep an eye out for is how much this is framed as sort of in the classic language of um, that the CCP is used versus the extent to which it becomes more personalized, because um, that's going to suggest a shorter time frame and a potentially, you know, shorter ticking clock um, for resolving the issue, which at which point I would get much, much more concerned um, that time pressure could produce a, a crisis that neither side is is equipped to handle um, well. Thank you so much. Uh, I've got a whole list of other questions, uh, many of which are about very important issues, but we've run out of time. Uh, it's been a, a great lecture. It's clear, it's comprehensive and, and your answers to questions really put things in perspective. So. Thank you very, very much. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. Those are um, great and some of the most difficult questions, I think, um, that we have to grapple with right now um, in US-China relations and, and in thinking about China. So um, thanks for pushing me to think hard about them. And, um, and I really appreciate uh, everyone's time and attention today. Thank you. Thank you.